But first, we start with a story that's been a focus for us here, Vancouver's growing homeless camps, especially the tent city in Strathcona Park in East Van. There are more than 400 tents in that park now. It is the largest homeless encampment in Canada. Yesterday, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart said the city has a plan to deal with this. Have a listen to this now. Here's Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart yesterday. So on Friday, I've called a special council meeting to deal with uh, really this, uh, this kind of explosion in homelessness we've seen here in the city. Uh, what I've asked council to do is consider a motion I'm putting forward. What is, what is the worst case scenario and how much would it cost the city to go on their own? And that, uh, I think that's going to spook everybody about how much that, uh, how much that would cost and the, and the very limited options that we have. Okay, Kennedy Stewart, the mayor, speaking there yesterday, and you heard him talk about the cost uh, the city faces for this. What about other levels of government, including the federal government? Where are the feds on this? Let's check in now with Jenny Kwan. She is the NDP MP for Vancouver East. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. You've done some really interesting work on this file, including uh, drilling down into where the funding comes from in the f- from the federal government here, and discovering that British Columbia seems to be getting shortchanged here when it comes to housing funding from Ottawa, which which seems crazy when you've got we've got a homeless crisis here. But could you tell us what's going on with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, you remember that back in 2017, the federal Liberal government announced with much fanfare to say that they were back in the business of housing with their national housing strategy. And so there were a great many photo ops taken with the announcement. Uh, but soon after, it became apparent that the national housing strategy was more talk than action. And uh, the NDP, we've called for the government to flow the money now to get the housing going. And they kept saying to us, no, 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 we're doing all sorts of great things. And I'm thinking, look, what you're saying does not match reality. Because what I'm seeing on the ground is that the homelessness crisis, the lack of affordable housing is getting even more urgent each and every day. And so I decided that, look, I'm not just going to take their word for it. Uh, so I embarked on a process through the House of Commons, and I obtained this data. Uh, and it tells me that the lion's share of the funding from the largest program in the National Housing Strategy, which is the National Housing Co-Investment Fund, went to Ontario In fact, some 94% of the funding went to Ontario, and that's $1.39 billion out of $1.47 billion. And guess what? BC only got a measly 5% of that funding, $7.3 million. And is it a wonder that we have a homelessness crisis to the tune that we have never seen before? And as you mentioned, the uh, encampment in Strathcona, it is absolutely in desperate situations but we're not the only place with an encampment victoria as you know also have encampments as well and this is in fact happening all across the country right in the middle of a pandemic and the federal government is just not at the table for us and the province are doing their level best they purchased three hotels in an attempt to house uh, the homeless encampments in an attempt to address the homelessness crisis Uh, and they've asked for the federal government for a 50-50 cost share. And to this day, not one dime has come from the federal government uh, to help with this problem. Okay, it seems it, it seems completely incongruous that, that the federal government would only be devoting 5% of the funding for this program to British Columbia when we appear to have 
arguably the worst and most pressing crisis when it comes to these homeless camps. This camp in Strathcona Park, in your riding, is the largest one in the country. What does the government say to this? I mean, have you gotten any explanation for why British Columbia is getting shortchanged like this? Well, you know, the government continue to say, oh, no, we've done all sorts of things. We've committed all sorts of money to to B.C. But the reality remains is that none of that commitment uh, has materialized in actual housing. You know, they say they've made these commitments, but it has not actually flowed. They have not really flowed money. I think that's part of the problem. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, when I raise this with the Minister of Housing directly, he has told me time and again that if the city and the province are on board, the for- federal government will be there. I've raised with him the idea of purchasing assets. I've raised with him doing modular housing, a whole, a whole bunch of things that we can do. And uh, but still, there's no action, no follow through. So in an effort to make sure that they get it, that the province and the city are there, myself, uh, the mayor and MLA Melanie Mark, our local MLA here in uh, Vancouver, jointly wrote a letter to the minister asking for a 50-50 call share. And so far, the only thing we've gotten back is an acknowledgement to say that they got our request. So basically, BC is absolutely getting shortchanged, uh, and we're not getting our houses housing crisis addressed. And this despite... And we'll remember that Prime Minister Trudeau came out in British Columbia during the election time to say, hey, I love British Columbia. I taught here and I'm, you know, part of this community. And right now, in this middle of a crisis, the federal government is turning the backs on D.C. Speaking to Vancouver East MP Jenny Kwan, let's talk a little bit about the homeless camp in Strathcona Park. That's in your riding, right? That's in Vancouver in your riding. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What What are your thoughts on the on this camp? Because I know the residents of that neighborhood have uh, been pleading for help for months here. Your thoughts? Well, I am so worried about what's going on, both for the residents there who um, are particularly concerned about the situation, their issues around safety, uh, the lack of access to green space already, as they were in uh, Vancouver East. We don't have that much green space, and so this is a major concern, no question about it. Equally significant, of course, are the people who are homeless right now who don't have access to adequate housing, this despite the federal government declaring that access to adequate housing is a basic human right. And so people are struggling and, um, you know, and, and we're doing our level best. But we cannot address this crisis without all three levels of government, along with the community, working together. And right now, the only people that's missing at the table is the federal government. We need the federal government to come to the table. They need to pony up. They need to give us our fair share of resources. They need to engage in a real partnership with the city, with the province, and with the community to deliver housing so that we can decamp Strathcona Park and house people. Yeah, the, the, the plan to decamp the people in the park, the city rolled out a plan yesterday with three options, one of which included a temporary relief encampment on vacant land. Do you think that's an adequate solution to move the campers out of Strathcona Park and set up a camp somewhere else, or do you need more than that? Well, in the ideal universe, what we really need, right, is to house people in actual housing, in permanent housing, and not just sort of move people from one encampment 
to another. With that being said, though, the situation in Strathcona is getting really desperate. And I think the city is looking at all options to see how we can address this crisis. And, and what I think is also being pointed out is this, that in order to address this situation, we need real solutions and we need everyone to be a real partner at the table. And the federal government cannot just keep on ignoring us and pretending that uh, okay. everything is okay and that they're doing everything they can because right now they're not doing everything they can. And I also want to ask, what are the liberal MPs doing about this? What's yeah. Heavy Fry doing about this? What's Joyce Murray doing about this? Because we all yeah. live in the city together. It's not just a Vancouver East problem. It's British Columbia's problem. It's a Vancouver problem. And in fact, this is a problem for all across the country. Right. And we have to remember, it was the federal liberals who canceled the National Affordable Housing Program back in 1993 that caused right. this crisis. We lost more than half a million units of affordable housing in this country as a result of that. And then in British Columbia, that's over 100,000 units that we didn't get. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you. All right, welcome back. Heard my conversation there with the local MP for Vancouver East, uh, Jenny Kwan, talking about the homeless camp in Strathcona Park. Let's go right to the neighborhood now and get the latest from Katie Lewis, Strathcona Residents Association. Katie, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, you heard the comments from your MP there. Yesterday we heard from the mayor of Vancouver with, with a plan here to, sh- to at least somehow clean out the, the camp and move people on to somewhere else more appropriate. Um, you seem to be getting, the, the neighborhood does seem to be getting some attention now. So what is the latest here on, from, the, from the neighborhood right now and your thoughts on what we've, been heard in the, what we've heard in the last 24 hours? Yeah, you know, um, well, um, it's been a long 12 weeks. Uh, that's how long yeah. the encampment has been there. It's grown from 30 tents to more than 400. Um, and um, respectfully, um, I was hoping for a bit more attention earlier on. Um, yeah. But however, it's now reached a, you know, kind of a critical point. Um, and uh, however, we are concerned that um, whatever kind of methods or whatever plans, um, we believe that they need to be immediate and they need to be put into place immediately. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't really heard that yet. Um, and we're just really encouraging our political leaders to step up and do their jobs. Yeah, what is the situation in the neighborhood right now? Can you sort of sum it up, what it's like with the camp there? Yeah, it's really hard, honestly. Um, I, I, I am very well known in the neighborhood and, um, you know, I talk to residents daily and, and, um, you know, we've had, uh, escalating situations. Um, we've had issues with children, um, and, you know, there's a line, um, and, um, you know, I, I'm concerned for children's safety and, and it's just not a safe place to be right now. You know, the property crime is very, it's, it's quite common in Strathcona and it's, that's not something that we're, not used to, but but just the levels of it have just reached such critical points, and and we're really concerned. There's needles everywhere. Um, we can't pick them up fast enough, and and there's been a a lot of one-on-one encounters with campers that have been really distressing um, for residents, and and um, they're unacceptable. Yeah, well, the situation is not safe for the campers either. I think that's something oh, that should absolutely. be stressed as well. Yeah, absolutely, and and um, you know we know that there have been assaults in the camp. Yeah. Um, we know that there's been violence in there and, and campers, the campers deserve to be safe. And, you know, we're all trying to, you know, peacefully coexist here. And, and it's, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a real shame. And I think it's absolutely pathetic that we've reached the point of 400 
um, unhoused people that need that that need assistance, and and it really is the government's job to deal with it. And and uh, I don't know if they were just on summer break or. <laughs> Um, Because I've been, you know, I've been sending a lot of emails over the last 12 weeks and making a lot of phone calls. And, um, you know, uh, to her credit, Jenny Kwan has been quite engaged. And um, I have been engaged with uh, city council, absolutely. Um, But we're very dismayed with the park board um, and their their silence in the last 12 weeks. Okay, the mayor yesterday said that there will be effectively an emergency meeting of council this Friday, and they're looking at a resolution that includes a number of options for housing people at, uh, housing people from these camps. Um, that It includes setting up a, a temporary campsite somewhere else, perhaps other than Strathcona Park, housing options as well. But the mayor also stressing that they want help from other levels of government. They want help from the province. They want help from the feds and if they don't get it the price tag of the city going alone and dealing with this is going to shock people on on yeah. friday but your thoughts on your, who should pay for this oh well it certainly shouldn't be the city and and yeah. uh you know in my opinion they've been they are stepping up when when no one else is doing their job um and um um Honestly, I really believe that it has to start with the federal government. And, and we've seen the numbers. We've seen the report from Jenny Kwan. And, and we, um, we know that we're getting, we are getting shafted in we D.C. Are. And yeah. it's unacceptable. And, and we, we strongly encourage the federal government to come to the table um, because we do have all other levels of government at the table waiting for them. Yeah, no, I think that when people, I'm already getting some messages on Twitter, oh, Jenny Kwan, okay, she's, this is just a partisan axe grinding exercise by the opposition. But you, you look at the numbers. I mean, you take a look at the funding numbers that have come up for the feds and their national housing program, so-called national, and BC is getting 5% of the money. That's ridiculous. We've got the biggest homeless ridiculous. camp in the country. I, yeah. I always say that data, data doesn't lie, Mike. Yeah. Um, and if the data is showing that, then, um, and then we need to stand up and fight for BC. Um, and this is a Canadian problem, right? This isn't just a BC problem, but it's very, very, um, you know, Vancouver and Victoria have been particularly hard hit. And, um, you know, in the pandemic and we're heading into winter, like it's getting colder. Um, and I'm really concerned about about what's going to happen to that camp over the winter. Um, and we, we know that campers need help. Yeah, we just got 30 seconds, uh, Katie, with this meeting coming up on Friday of Vancouver City Council as they they try to deal with this. I think finally, I think they're a little late here, but what, what would be your message to the mayor and council this Friday? Well, I mean, um, they, they've uh, they've got to do the right thing and, yeah. you know, um, and they've got to keep pushing the feds. And, you yeah. know, we just have to make it so uncomfortable um, that the federal government has to step up. And I'm fully supportive of them in their efforts to do that. Um, but at the same time, our neighborhood is in crisis, and we need we need assistance okay. now. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Well, if you're a fan of Netflix, and there sure are a lot of people out there binging uh, during this pandemic, there's a very good chance you've been checking out the new hit series Away, starring the Academy Award-winning actress Hilary Swank. It is about an astronaut leaving her family for a three-year mission to Mars. This is a great show, very popular, trending in Canada right now. My next guest, Chris Jones, uh, his uh, magazine article for Esquire magazine back in 2014 was the inspiration for this show. He's been one of the writers on the show. I'm going to speak to him in just a moment, but first, let's have a little listen to the trailer for Away. I got you a present. 
That's the Earth, the Moon, and Mars. And the string was me making my way back to you. So just remember, the further away I get, I'm actually getting closer to being back to you. The only thing I've ever known for sure in my life is that I wanted to be on the first mission to Mars. It's only three years. Okay, I guess I'll miss you. I'll be right back. All right, there you go. There's a way. The show is getting great reviews. It's trending high in Canada and in the United States as well. The show was inspired by a 2014 article in Esquire magazine about American astronaut Scott Kelly. And it was written by my next guest, the very fine writer Chris Jones. He's a two-time National Magazine Award winner. He's a Canadian, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on. Mike, thanks so much for having me. Hey, thank you for being here. I'm a big fan of your work, and uh, especially on Twitter. Uh, I encourage everybody to follow you, on, follow you on Twitter. You're hilarious on there, and I love your work <laughs> in magazines. And uh, it's it's an amazing transition you've made here to writing for the screen as well. So what's it like for you to write that article for uh, Esquire back in 2014 and Scott Kelly and then see it inspired into a hit Netflix show? Uh, it's totally ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it. It's just, um, <sighs> buddy, I'm I'm just a fat dad in Port Hope, Ontario, and so for uh, all this to happen to someone like me is, um, I mean, it's exciting. It's awesome. It's also completely surreal. Yeah, it's well, great. Congratulations. That's great. If you go back to the 2014 article, which I encourage people to check out online about about Scott Kelly and uh, his trip to the International Space Station for a year. A great, great piece. Um, Thank you. How did you get on to that? How did you get on to that article and that assignment for Esquire? Um, I, I wrote, I've written about space quite a lot. Like, I, I definitely don't have or never had a focus as a journalist. I started out as a sports writer at the National Post and then sort of found my way into other things. And as far back as, like, 2003, I began writing about space. Um, the Columbia crash was the first was the first thing I wrote about. Um, and I guess sort of stuck with it. Uh, for me, sort of space exploration, especially, you know, involving humans is pretty much the best thing we do, I think as a species. And I've always felt that if you want, you know, if you're feeling sad about the state of the world or sad about the state of humanity, if you spend some time in the company of astronauts, you end up feeling better about things. And, when Scott Kelly was going up for his one-year mission, I just thought, gosh, what a thing, like going away for a year. And in his case, he was going to the space station, so he wasn't particularly going anywhere. He was just going to spend a long time in space. Um, and talking to him about that experience and how he prepared for it and what he was expecting and the reality of it, it just it made me realize you know, what a rich story it is every time someone goes into space, from the launch to the the time they return home and and the show is sort of a a hyper version of that um you know the mission to mars would sort of be the ultimate that's probably as far as we could ever go and uh and that's what the show's about what it's like to go that far away from home yeah it really is amazing because the the article does a a great job of describing what it's like in space for an astronaut for for long periods of time and the impacts on your mind and your body when you're when you're out there in weightless space for such a long time and he was out there for a year the astronauts traveling to Mars, man, they'll be out there for several years. Right? How long does it take to get to and from Mars? 
I mean, it depends on, you know, there's, there's, there's the technology doesn't exist. So it depends on how good we are at building that rocket and, uh, and Mars, the distance between Mars, Mars and earth constantly varies, but sort of the best guess is that it'll take something like eight or nine months to get there, eight or nine months to get back. And if you go that far and because of the trajectories of the planets, you'd probably spend around 14 months on the surface. So close to three years, uh, all told. And in our case, you know, one of the interesting things about astronauts for me is NASA really likes us astronauts to have families. Um, you know, if you look at the astronaut corps at NASA, most of them are married, most of them have children. And that might seem counterintuitive because it makes it harder for them to leave. But, but by NASA's reckoning, it also makes them more likely to come back. <laughs> like it makes you yeah. fight to return. And, uh, in our case, you know, with Hillary Swank's character, Emma, she has a, a husband and daughter and, you know, the daughter is 14 at the start or 15 at the start of the show. She'll be 18, you know, if, if well, by the time she comes back and those are decisions that people will have to make, you know, if they're going to do a mission like this, like, am I willing to miss three years of my earth life um, in exchange for three years on Mars? The, the TV series does a wonderful job sort of delving into all of that. One of the things I loved about your article on Esquire was I learned a lot about what it's like for astronauts in outer space and not only the impacts on their body, but also on their mind. So when NASA goes about selecting these astronauts to do these kind of long-term missions, do they look at them, you know, not only their skills as, as a pilot or whatever, like, you know, uh, whether they can fight, fight, fly a jet fighter, but also their psychological and mental toughness and preparedness for something like that? Absolutely. And the, what's, what's interesting to me about the long missions is that, you know, there are some astronauts who are perfectly capable and in fact, excellent at short missions who would not be good candidates to do a long mission. Um, and as you know, NASA sort of evolved originally, they were hiring astronauts to do sort of two week shuttle missions. And now, you know, you're looking at six months, minimum missions to go to the space station as long as a year to go to the space station. And then the last class that came in, you know, our potential lunar and Martian missions, they've hired people who are specifically good at long, long endurance missions. And um, what's interesting to me is what they, what they demand is sort of a, a weird combination of resilience and adaptability that most of us don't possess. Usually you're one or the other. You're, you're really stubborn or you're really passive. Uh, the best long-duration astronauts are both. And it's really hard to find someone with that combination of skills. Like, yeah. when NASA chose Scott Kelly to do that first year-long mission, out of their core of, like, really impressive people, and astronauts are amazing, um, they had a handful. They thought, like, three or four people would actually be good candidates for that mission. It's really hard to find someone who's suited for it. Speaking to Canada's own Chris Jones, writer-at-large for Esquire magazine about the new Netflix hit uh, Away, which uh, was inspired by uh, Chris's work in, uh, in Esquire. And you, uh, you're one of the writers on the TV series as well, right? So what's it, like to, what's it been like for you to uh, start transitioning over to working with Netflix? And how did, how did they pick up the series in the first place? And how did you find out it was going to be a TV series? Uh, I mean, it was a really long process. The story got... Um the original magazine story got optioned by Jason Kadams, who made Friday Night Lights and Parenthood, and Matt Reeves, who's a director who's right now working on the Batman. Um, and they, you know, always from the you know from the beginning, they had this idea that it would become a show. Uh, they hired a writer named Andrew Hinderocker, and I worked with him to develop the characters um, in the series. And then you sort of write you write the first episode, the pilot, and you write the 
you know, a, a map, basically a document about what you see the series being, and you go out to market with it. And uh, Netflix bought it, um, gave us a series order, and and then you then and then like a machine goes into work. <laughs> like you you hire you know all these writers and hundreds of people make a TV show together. Like it's a it's a massive army. Um, and including, you know, a bunch of people in Vancouver, we shot mostly in Vancouver, oh, um, cool. and, uh, and everyone sort of plays their part. And so, you know, to have it happen, lots of things start in Hollywood. You know, I've had stories that were optioned before and, um, it's really hard to get something made. And so for this to happen, the way it happened and when it happened and with people I really enjoy working with and, you know, to have Hillary Swank say out loud lines that i wrote um you know it's, it's incredible it's, it's the i'm not built i'm not constitutionally built to handle something of this scale <laughs> you know like i like writing little stories that go out in the world and um spending the weekend sort of watching the, the netflix numbers and everything it's been it's been pretty overwhelming to be well, kind of, yeah, i anticipated my next question there is as you got closer to the the launch of the tv series on on netflix and then to see it immediately start trending as, as one of the more po- most popular shows what was that like for you is it kind of nerve-wracking to watch that unfold i have not had a lot of sleep uh the past few days mike it's um you know the show came out on friday uh you know it's like years of work like the story came out in 2014, so it's sort of six years of hope and labor, and and then you you just put it out there, and and there's nothing you can do at that stage. It's sort of a really odd sensation. I'm kind of a control freak, and but you can't do anything. <laughs> you just yeah. you just let it go and hope people start watching it. And the first tip I had that everything was going to be okay was I want to say on Saturday it was number seven on. Like Netflix doesn't give us numbers, but I can turn on my Netflix and saw it was number seven in Canada, and then and then it kind of crept up to number four, and I was like, oh, that's exciting. And then one of my bosses sent it from the U.S. and it was number two in America, and I thought, holy, that's great. And then um, and then it, it, it you know as of yesterday it was number one in uh, I mean a bunch of different countries like all over the world. It's it's sort of it's both exciting and completely terrifying at the same time. Well, that's that's very exciting stuff for you, Chris. I'm very pleased for you. I follow you on men- I mentioned I follow you on Twitter, and you got like what close to sixty thousand Twitter followers there. And you're hila- absolutely hilarious on Twitter. Some of the stories you post on there. So I, I encourage everybody to follow you. And Twitter can be kind of like a like a toxic place, you know, with a with a lot of kind of hate and nasty stuff thrown around. Yeah. But but man, your stuff. People seem to love you because on Twitter because of the fun, the great stories that you write. What has that been? That experience been like for you on social media? It's been lovely. Like I, yeah. I Twitter can be a cesspool, and yeah. well, I've been on Twitter for a long time, and then and had experienced that. You know, it had not always been a positive experience, but. When the COVID-19 lockdown started, I, I told a story about, uh, you know, high school experience. A guy kind of saved the day when I'd blown a booger on my chest um, named Pete Simon. And I got a really nice response. <clears throat> and I thought, well, maybe this is the kind of thing that'll help people just for two minutes every week. just like a little distraction from, from how awful everything is. And yeah. every Friday, I just started telling a story and had no intention of anything sort of building off that but the response has been both like overwhelming but also really kind like yes. if you look at the mentions 
uh, you know, when people reply to the stories, it's just been lovely. Like, it's been so nice. It really has. There's so many people on there who just, like, they tell their own stories, they make jokes, or they just kind, you know, and and they start talking to each other, and and, um, it's uh, through complete accident. There's this little part of the internet that just, it seems where nice people go, and it's, I'm just lucky enough that it's the mentions in my my Twitter stories. Um, So it's been... It's been really good, actually. It's been really nice yeah. for me, and like, um, it makes me feel good. Like, it's just one of those things that makes me feel good. It's it's uh, it's been lovely. Well, it makes your followers feel good too, because they're just great. And uh, Chris, I'm very happy for you for all your success, and uh, keep on keeping on, man. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I really appreciate you, it. You bet. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the smoke in the air now. Real smoky day over Vancouver yesterday. Really bad in uh, Victoria as well. And there's some haze out there still today. High heat, gusting winds, uh, kicking up those wildfires across the border in Washington State over the long weekend. Hundreds of thousands of hectares there burned in a matter of days, and the wind blew a lot of that smoke into British Columbia. Let's get an update on this now with my guest, Armel Castellan. He is an Environment Canada meteorologist based in Victoria, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Armel. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Can you give us an update on what the current situation is with the smoke and these fires? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we had our pulse, if we can call it that, yesterday. And, you know, I can call it that in in contrast to 2017 and 2018, where we were dealing with this, you know, day in and day out for many weeks. So luckily, um, you know, the wildfire season was extremely delayed this year, um, you know, uh, certainly in BC and uh, in parts of Canada. In Washington State, Oregon, California, of course, it's been uh, not quite the same story. They've certainly been drier and warmer. And as a result, we had that explosive of growth you just talked about and uh, when you have that kind of situation matching the winds uh, you know heading west as opposed to west to east they were kind of coming from the interior and then managed to mix down all the way to the surface so we had you know we had those Siberian uh, smoke plumes come all the way over and give us a few nice sunsets in kind of the middle of uh, August uh, and then followed by a few Californian fires then as well. Uh, but this is when it's finally hit the ground. And, uh, yeah, we had elevated fine particulate yesterday, you know, to the tune of uh, the air quality health index reaching 10 plus. So not a negligible event and luckily a fairly short one. Okay. What's the situation like today? Well, today things have, uh, you know, gradually petered off. Uh, the, 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 the values, we, we measure it in micrograms per cubic meter. Uh, they went from, you know, highs up, up above 100 uh, in many places in the south interior of Vancouver, Victoria, like you mentioned, and are now down in the, in the regular kind of relatively good air quality. I mean, we do imagine that, you know, for the next, you know, 24, 36 hours, we could still see some moderate air quality. Um, So to be mindful of that, especially for the vulnerable populations, you know, folks with respiratory, cardiovascular issues, uh, the young, the elderly, pregnant women. So it does uh, take on like quite a few people and uh, just to be quite uh, cognizant that it's, it's still out there and, you know, we're, we're not totally out of the woods, but we're certainly uh, imagining that things will ameliorate here for the next bit. Okay, that's good to hear. Yesterday was a pretty tough day for people with a lot of that haze and smoke in the air for sure. I mean, are we getting a little bit of relief this morning because the wind direction changed? I mean, our fires are still burning in the down there, I, I imagine, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you look at any satellite imagery and you look at the coast of uh, Oregon and, and then also further south, obviously things are very much uh, concentrated and very active. So yeah. we're not in the worst of uh, where you could be geographically speaking. Um, but the explosive growth that was happening in the eastern central parts of uh, Washington state have kind of, you know, t- tempered off a little bit. And yeah, it has everything to do with the wind direction and kind of the instability. So we got a little bit of a northerly push yesterday and that kind of started to help things out in the evening and then overnight so luckily right now we're just dealing with a remnant amount of smoke we're not really adding too much to the to the uh airshed okay speaking to armel castellan he's a meteorologist with environment canada uh, you mentioned earlier armel some of the concerns around air quality especially with people who may have some compromised health issues can you talk a little bit about that i mean what what causes that air quality is it the particulate in the air from the smoke that's right. So there, there are different components of the air quality health index. We talk about the nitrous oxides and the ozone, which at the surface are, are very detrimental to health as well. But when we talk about wildfires in particular, they emit uh, a lot of ash, right? And it makes it into the air. And there's a lot of it is very, very small. So we call it particulate matter 2.5. And that refers to the micron size. And a lot of it is smaller than that. So it just is so small. It can, you know, obviously it can travel very big distances. It can, it can make it into people's uh, uh, respiratory systems and even into the blood uh, because of how small these particulates are. And, and now with a, a very big body of, of evidence in the health um, uh, world, we, we know that these impacts are, are very large. Uh, they, if, you know, it, it knows no borders, as is the case, yeah. you know, going from Washington to BC and then back down to Washington. So, you know, Seattle's in the thick of it as well. And and uh, has, yeah, big implications for many different uh, vulnerable populations. And yeah. even, even yesterday, people yeah. who are fully healthy adults are recommended not to go exercise in that because, you know, you can develop a cough and, uh, and, 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 you know, stinging eyes and so on and so forth. Yeah. Who is most at risk when that smoke is hanging in the air? With people who've got compromised health conditions or systems, who are, who are the people most at risk or should be most concerned? That's right. So the the infants and and even children, elderly, uh, pregnant women, and then, uh, you know, COPD. So um, uh, what's that acronym? Essentially, you know, people with cardiovascular and and also asthmatics, of course, Uh, you know, anything related to the respiratory system are going to have a lot of of problems. And in fact, hospitals, you know, nationwide see upticks in hospitalizations as a result of air quality issues. Yeah, chronic chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which which Thank a lot of, which a lot of people have. <laughs> I just googled it. You know what I mean? What am I going to tell you? Um, yeah, so it's a tough situation for, for people for sure. You mentioned that the up until now, it seemed like the wildfire season in in British Columbia or for here or from the Lower Mainland wasn't too bad, right? Like we didn't have this like, really devastating wildfires like we've seen in the past. But I don't know. Like maybe we're just sort of late to the party here. Well, we're late to the party because, I mean, in Vancouver and the south coast here, we didn't have, you know, a horrible 
uh, time with the summer, but it wasn't, you know, a record breaker in terms of uh, many things, but it was still, you know, wetter than normal, even on the South Coast. Vancouver was, the airport was 127% of normal for August, even uh, for precipitation. But when you kind of look at uh, the season as a whole, it was a very delayed uh, freshet or spring melt. Uh, We kept on getting a lot of uh, moisture. You know, Prince Rupert saw over, just over, or just, sorry, just under 800 millimeters when they normally see under 400. So, you know, there are some areas that were extremely wet, uh, record-breakingly so. And as a result, the wildfire season was extremely delayed. And in, 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 all, in so many metrics, it's a, a well below normal when, it, when you look at BC in particular. Uh, and then, of course, if you go south of the border, it, the, the script is a little bit flipped quite quickly. Yeah, right. Especially with the hot weather we're seeing right now, is there potential for fires to continue and the potential to see more smoky, hazy days ahead? Yes. The answer, the short answer is yes. I mean, the, we're dealing with, you know, five to 10 degrees above normal, both for the daytime high temperature and the overnight low. Uh, and that's going to last here for another kind of three, four days. And, and even then beyond that, because we don't have a very strong, you know, Pacific storm brewing right now. So we have maybe a very small blip next Tuesday, Wednesday. And even then that may not uh, fully materialize. Uh, so what we could see before that happens kind of Saturday through to Monday is uh, winds coming up from the coast, so from California and Oregon, and giving us another pulse of smoke um, may not be quite as bad as what we saw yesterday because that was kind of a direct feed, you know, uh, a bullseye to the south coast. But uh, nonetheless, you know, we're not out of the woods. We probably will see a little bit more smoke in the air here for the next few days, if not a couple of weeks. And then, uh, you know, all bets are off for the second or the last bit of September because that's when the storms really start to brew and we generally kind of flip the switch and start to get fairly wet. And I think the ecosystem will appreciate it. Okay, despite that, though, we're living in the era of climate change. And is this something, do you think, like going forward and looking at sort of climate modeling and climate change and and rising temperatures, is this something we could see frequently in the future or more often anyway? Yeah, well, the, the the question about attribution is always an interesting one, and we can attribute things like uh, precipitation patterns, like drought, um, and also atmospheric rivers, like we saw in January of la- of this year, um, where you know we had five in a row over the course of you know four or five weeks, and that was uh, very notable as well. So those patterns are attributable to um, what we can expect with climate change, um, and as a result, wildfires are part of that equation because when you have a strong drought signal or these high pressure systems that end up dominating for for months uh, or at least weeks at a time uh, you know you you end up having a lot of smoke as a result I mean that said you know forest practices have another uh, part uh, in that in that storyline but uh, generally speaking with with climate change we can expect to see uh, probably more smoke events that uh, than we have in the last decades thanks a lot for your expertise today I appreciate your time yeah my pleasure Mike have a good afternoon